Howdy folks and welcome back to another episode of the Euphoria Health Podcast. I'm your host Matt Sapala. For anyone joining the conversation for the first time, firstly welcome and thank you for jumping on board. Secondly, just a little bit of background about myself. I'm a qualified personal trainer and I'm currently studying a Bachelor of Health Science majoring in nutrition. I'm extremely passionate about holistic health, longevity and sustainability through everything we do. Through this platform, I aim to add value to your life by educating and inspiring you on the ways to create healthful decisions each and every day. Decisions that add years to your life. I don't want to be your quick fix, I want to be your only fix. Since launching this podcast in 2019, it has been one of, if not, the most rewarding experience of my life. The conversations and interactions that I've had with people within this health and wellness community continually blows me away. This week's podcast guest falls under this category and I'm so excited and grateful that I've had the opportunity to sit down with Simon Hill, the creator of Plant Proof and author of the book, The Proof is in the Plants. Simon, you have been the biggest influence on my life by way of education around the power of plants. I've listened to every single one of your podcast episodes, and for you guys that haven't heard of it before, it is the Plant Proof Podcast, and I'm continuously blown away by your wealth of knowledge, your drive to know more, and the impact you're having on people in the community. This was a real pinch me moment, folks, one of which, which I am so grateful for. On today's episode, Simon and I take a deep dive into the realm of plant-based nutrition. We open up a big can of worms in relation to plant-based nutrition for professional athletes and Simon's clinical experience working as a physiotherapist in this field. We highlight public nutrition recommendations and how difficult it is for us consumers to know where to begin. Within this field, there needs to be legislative change in the way we market and package foods. But in order for this to occur, we as individuals need to vote with our dollar. We chat about this in depth during today's chat. We also address a recent study comparing animal-based protein sources and plant-based protein sources at the same amounts in addressing the area of muscle protein synthesis. Simon explains this study in depth, but in a nutshell, the study concluded that there was no greater outcome from the cohort consuming an omnivorous diet, as opposed to a plant-exclusive diet. This part of the conversation is extremely mind-blowing and makes us rethink our perspective on protein quality. We chat at length about the role of cooking oils, saturated fats, chocolate, and the term moderation, and where these fit in our diet from a health and longevity point of view. Additionally, there are many hidden gems in this podcast, a resource that I recommend going back to three, four, five times to truly grasp the information. Also guys, if you haven't gotten your hands on Simon's new book, The Proof is in the Plants, I highly recommend you do so ASAP. 100% of the proceeds of this book are being donated to save our endangered rainforests. This alone shows that there is no hidden agenda with Simon's information. He is striving to help add quality years to our lives as humans, protect our animals and preserve our beautiful planet. And I take my hat off to you, Simon, for the work that you do. Lace up your runners, pour yourself a cup of tea and listen to 60 odd minutes of Simon Hill's wisdom. I'll see you guys on the other side.
Simon Hill, welcome to the Euphoria Health Podcast. Matt, thank you uh, so much. I'm uh, honoured to be here and, and really looking forward to seeing uh, where we go and just uh, spending some time together. Mate, this podcast has been in the pipeline for quite a long time and the influence that you've had on my life in particular and, and many other people's lives is incredible. So firstly, I want to start off by saying thank you so much for the work that you do and and the the content that you're sharing and your main message behind everything. So on, on behalf of everyone, we do appreciate it. Oh, you're, uh, you're most welcome. It feels good to, to hear that. And, uh, you know, certainly a lot of time goes into creating the, the content that I do and, and of course, writing the book. So, um, you know, it means a lot to hear that. And, and I've been overwhelmed with, with support over the last few months from so many people around the world. And yeah, it honestly is, uh, is hard to describe and hard to put into words, but, uh, yeah, thank you for that. So obviously your book's only been on the market for a few months now, but the previous time goes in going into writing and preparing that is astronomical. So how does it feel to finally celebrate the launch of the new book? And for people that have never heard of it, talk to us a little bit about your catalyst for creating it. It feels a little surreal uh, to be completely uh, honest with you. I spent three and a half years writing it and I tried to, to, to work on the book in some way pretty much every single day through that period. So it, it literally absorbed my life. Uh, and it was a very enjoyable process. It wasn't, wasn't something that I, I felt was forced. I was, it was challenging me and I was learning a lot. And, uh, of course there were moments there where I wanted to tear my hair out. Uh, but overall I would say the process was very, very rewarding. Um, how does it feel now? that it's out i was a little nervous i was you know you spend so long working on something and ultimately people can 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 read it in what two weeks three weeks four weeks maybe and 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 uh and judge it in that period of time um which seems crazy when you work on it for so long so i was a bit nervous but i knew that the the science in the book was really strong and and I, I wrote the book exactly how I wanted to write it, not how uh, my publisher or anyone else wanted me to write it. So I was very proud of, of what the end product was. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been very pleased to see that, that it seems to be landing well with people. And, and the messages that I am getting is that it is helping clear up some confusion around various aspects of, of nutrition. I think you hit the nail on the head regarding the authenticity of the book and the podcast. And it, you can really see from listening to all the content that you're delivering, whether that's podcast or, or reading the book, you can really see your authenticity come through. And I think it, from my personal opinion, it differs from other health related and diet related books, quote unquote, because of that authenticity and because of the main message behind writing the book. Yeah, for as long as I can remember, I've just always been very interested in science and the scientific method. And that was thanks to my dad. My dad's been working in, in the field of science, physiology uh, for 30, 40 years now, publishing papers and doing, doing research uh, at a very microscopic level. And so I've always been surrounded by science and I'd come home to papers and papers of, 
of, uh, or piles and piles of papers, I should say, and uh, developed this deep appreciation for what science is. And, and over the years, I've become very, very interested, of course, in nutrition, but it's, it's also for me, it's, it's my fascination with science and curiosity for science that really is dro- drove the book. It's why I, I'm on the podcast. I'm there to, to learn along with everyone else. And, and that's what science is, is all about. It's not about finding evidence to support what our view is, but it's, it's actually about looking at the evidence and then creating a view from that. Um, and so uh, that, that was my approach with, with writing the book and, and has been my approach with the podcast. Yeah, absolutely love that. So, I mean, you touched on it before. My next question is regarding your upbringing and, and what life was like for you growing up. And if you throw back to when you were a kid and a teenager, did you ever make the connection between the foods you were eating and, and how you were feeling or the things you were able to achieve? I didn't in my sort of early teenage years at all. I was a very healthy young kid growing up, but I, I very much ate the standard Australian diet. And that was a mix of, of home cooked meals where mum was doing the best with what she knew. And, and we would have, you know, quite a, a few freshly cooked meals at home and we would try and work in some vegetables but meat was definitely the hero of the the plate and then there was you know lots of fast food mcdonald's celebrations after sport and uh i i had no reason to question food because you know i was i was an athletic kid i was you know i was not overweight i looked very healthy on the outside and so no i hadn't drawn any connection between the food i was eating and and my health i think the very first time that i i did first uh notice the 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 link between the food that i was eating and how i was feeling was with dairy actually so when i was 18 i i used to consume a lot of yogurt and i i felt afterwards it it, it felt uncomfortable my digestion didn't feel right i would often feel bloated and so when i was 18 i made the intuitive decision to eliminate dairy from my diet uh and i felt a lot better immediately uh why i didn't continue to think about the connection between food and and my health at that stage i'm not sure that was enough for me uh and so that was the only change i made at that at that point but that was was definitely my first experience seeing the the power of food on our health and you, you touched on before how you sort of made that intuitive decision to ditch the dairy because it made you feel. I think from connecting with people within my community, within the health and fitness community and, and so forth, a lot of people make these connections but put up with these symptoms. And I just want to get your perspective on why majority of the population or why do you think majority of people put up with these symptoms knowing that the food is making them feel that way. I think we grow to, to begin to normalize those symptoms. So we, 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 we start to believe that is how you feel when you're healthy. We get so used to it. That becomes our baseline level of what health is. And 
uh, to go a step further in terms of my personal changes I made, I said I felt very healthy and had no real reason to look in at the foods I was eating. But some years later, when I did change my entire diet, I noticed better sleep, increased energy. Uh, I noticed my digestion after meals was better. So even though I felt healthy before those changes, it was the, the, the new way that I was eating really illustrated and highlighted to me that in fact, what I had, had accepted previously as my, my uh, sort of definition of health was actually inaccurate. So, you know, I agree because I, I come across that as well myself with the many people that I speak to. And, and I think it is just people settling. They're settling with those symptoms and they've convinced themselves that that is what it means to be human and to live healthy, live in a healthful manner, but it's not. And, uh, you know, I've, I really feel like we can all raise that baseline of, of what health is. Yeah, I love it. That's such a great answer. And I guess taking it a step further, you you obviously now adopt a predominant a plant based diet, predominantly filled with whole foods. I'd love to know the catalyst for shifting towards this sort of lifestyle. Sure. So my brother was uh, traveling up to stay with me. Uh, he and his fiance at the time, now his wife, and uh, he called me and said, and this was some months before he was coming, and said hey, uh, I just want to give you the heads up that Lauren and I have have slightly changed the way that we're eating. And he was doing so because he knew that I would be uh, potentially, you know, doing the shopping or booking restaurants, etc. And he said, we've, we've uh, transitioned to a pescatarian diet. And I knew what that was. And I said, okay, cool. Well, I'm, I'm, I've always been a fairly open-minded person. So I had no issues with it and said, that's fine. We can, uh, we can cook, uh, whatever you guys want to cook. And they're both great cooks. So I knew that they would, would, uh, provide recipes and whatnot. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I know lots of restaurants that serve seafood, so there's, there's, there's no issues for us to navigate this. And then about a week before he arrived, he called me up again and he said, just need to, uh, let you know, we've changed the way we're eating again i said okay didn't know where this was going i thought he meant he was reverting back and and was eating you know red meat and chicken etc again and uh he said we've we've actually eliminated the fish now there's no seafood and i thought okay well what's that going to leave and uh so that was that was the the first time he told me that he was transitioning himself and Lauren to a completely plant exclusive diet. And you know why why did they make that decision? Well, they they had come across some information that they they believed at the time was speaking to the, the fact that if you adopt a diet that is plant-based, you can reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease. And this was particularly interesting to my brother because uh, uh, our dad had a heart attack when he was 41 years old. And so did his uh, dad, our grandfather. And my brother's not scientific. He, um, 
you know, he, he, he's from a, a business sales background, but what he'd heard was enough for, to convince him that he should give it a go. I'm a little harder to convince, particularly when it comes to science. Um, so anyway, the, on this phone call, I, again, I'm being open-minded. I said, okay, that's fine, you know, but I'm going to need a bit more help in terms of what we're going to be eating at home and where we're going to go and eat if we go out. Because, you know, I honestly, I had no idea about uh, the, the world of veganism or what vegan food looked like. It was never on my radar. And so he, he and Lauren came up and they, they stayed with us and being the great cooks they are, they did a lot of cooking throughout that week. And we, we had a great time and uh, they weren't forceful with any information or anything like that. But by the end of the week, the, the experience that I had was that the food tasted amazing. So it was enough for me to realize that, okay, they're saying that, that eating this way can reduce our risk or possibly reduce our risk of, of having a heart attack like my dad had had at quite a young age and I don't have to sacrifice flavor. It's, it would seem quite ignorant of me not to look into this further. So, uh, that was kind of a, a seed that was planted. And then I went down a, a whole long process of trying to prove my brother wrong. And I really, really, really wanted to find evidence that I could continue to eat lots of red meat. In fact, I wanted to find evidence that I could double down on it. Uh, and I couldn't. And, and, and for a while there, I was, I was really uh, worried about the conversation I was going to have to have with my brother because I'd have to tell him that he was right. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it, it got to a point where I realized just internally, the internal dialogue I was having, I could have buried my head in the sand and kept eating what I was, but internally it wasn't sitting well with me. I knew it was the wrong decision. If I really was valuing my long-term health and if I really, really wanted to do as much as I could to reduce my chance of having the same experience that my dad had had, my dad was very lucky that he, that he didn't die. Then I had to act on this information. And so after spending a, you know, many, many, many months going through lots of different science, speaking to lots of people, this was all well before the podcast, all off air stuff for a long period. Um, I realized that the science was clear. Now I needed to feel how this felt for my body. And that was the, the start of, of making my own changes to the foods on my plate and beginning to experiment and, and beginning to feel the effects of that. Wow. That's so intriguing to see that, you know, this all, this, what you've created now stem from a little argument with your brother trying to prove him wrong as all great siblings do. And touching on that a little bit further, you are obviously working within the highest performance sport environment at this stage of your life. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did you ever come across any, evidence relating to athletes adopting this style of of 
eating and what was the conversation typically in that realm around that? Yeah, so I was uh, to rewind, rewind sort of right back. My first degree I did was physiotherapy, and I had a particular interest in sports physiotherapy and was working with AFL footballers. And I was working in a sports medicine clinic in in Melbourne called Paran Sports Medicine Centre. And so I was very focused on uh, rehabilitation within you know high performance athletes, and in in that circle, I mean animal protein is king and uh you know i felt at that stage of my career that i i was inadequately trained it wasn't my job first and foremost because i was a physiotherapist but i was very inadequately educated when it came to nutrition and i felt like there was a lack of education even within within the club there was very much a sort of cookie cutter approach uh, everyone was given the exact same advice. It seemed like the advice between all clubs were the same. And particularly when 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 I was coming across this information, it was becoming very apparent to me that a lot of the advice within these circles was perhaps not in the best interest of the player's long-term health. Uh, and, I mean, that's a whole nother sort of conversation around duty of care and, 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 and the, the role of education there. Um, but to answer your specific part around performance at this time there, you know, we still, I'd still love there to be a lot more science, but there's a lot more today than there was back then looking, uh, at this exact question there, there was enough information for me to realize that to challenge the notion that you couldn't get protein from plants for example i could see quite clearly then that you could you know so i was able to to sort of overcome that fear i was able to to see that you know let's say aside from vitamin b12 that you could get every single nutrient your body required i was also able to see that there were uh possibly particular benefits to increasing the consumption of whole plant foods that are rich in very anti-inflammatory molecules, phytochemicals that you're not going to get in the same volume when a lot of your calories are coming from animal foods. I was also able to see the significant advantage from uh, a higher fiber consumption. So there was enough for me to, I mean, I could definitely see the risk reduction from chronic disease, but I'd be lying if I said at that point, I was convinced from a performance point of view that plant-based was, was equal to say animal-based. And so uh, I certainly wanted to see the, the effect of making these changes to myself personally. You know, I was very active at the time. I was doing strength training. Uh, I was doing, I was still playing sport at that time. And so uh, I, I had enough information is probably the best way of putting it, that it, it was going to be very healthy for me long-term. And I remained a little bit skeptical at the start as to whether I would be able to still build strength and improve my performance, uh, which I can say now uh you know, very convincingly that I was able to do that. So, um, you know, you got to remember this was a slightly different time than uh, today. 
And I think like within that high performance sport realm and the environment, the best interests of the people running the show for lack of a better term, it's getting the most out of you for that period of time. So you can see why there isn't as much conversation regarding longevity, so to speak. It's more about maximizing their the years that, you know, you're in your prime to play the sport. Yeah. And I, I think that's the totally reasonable position to a certain extent. I think, you know, we can see now, particularly with, uh, the concussions, for example, you know, these, these, we're, we're now realizing that, uh, in certain circumstances, if, if someone suffering from repeated concussions, uh, develops, um, CTE, they can end up with a very high risk of dementia later in their life. And we're seeing changes in regulations. And so there's a conversation that's starting, that's starting to brew around the long-term care of the athlete. Uh, now I'm, I'm quite optimistic that with more and more science coming out from a performance point of view, and I think it's already happening now. There are definitely, you know, my, my time working with AFL players, we're talking, this is back in 2010. So, so the conversation has no doubt already changed with regards uh, to diet. Um, what I think is really interesting, and again, we don't have high level science, is that we do see anecdotally a lot of athletes towards their end of their career in particular shifting to plant-based diets, be it plant predominant or plant exclusive, actually as a way of improving their recovery and extending their career. So uh, I, I'd be lying if I said that that has been, you know, clearly shown in clinical trials, for example, but there is a lot of anecdotal evidence that is building that is suggestive of that. And, and so it might be that when that evidence surfaces, then clubs start taking notice of this a little bit more because it means that they can get more out of their players for longer. Yeah, definitely. And the shift towards individual athletes adopting this sort of lifestyle is starting to gain a lot of traction. There's a number of AFL players on that topic that are adopting this lifestyle, still thriving, playing at the top level, cricketers in every sport, Grand Prix, motorsports. Like it is, it is, evident that you can still thrive off this lifestyle and and be able to perform at the best and obviously succeed at the top as well and and you know i think i think nutritionists and dietitians who are sort of very crucial in in helping uh, players navigate this space are becoming more and more confident in plant-based diets and that's key you know with over the last i'd say just five years it's it's become a a much more mainstream conversation and five to ten years ago there was much more concern around nutritional deficiencies and what about this and what about that and now the conversation has really started to shift and it's an acceptance that plant predominant plant exclusive diets are safeguarding people when it comes to their long-term health and an acceptance that all diets need to be appropriately planned and that, you know, these diets, whilst they offer huge benefits and risk reductions when we're talking about chronic diseases and long-term health, there are a few nutrients of focus that you need to plan for. And what we're seeing is the nutritionist and the dietitian world, they're arming themselves with that information. 
So now they feel comfortable having the conversation. So when the player comes to them, it's not a, a, an immediately a big cross, red cross through the paper saying, no, don't pursue that. It's like, oh, great. You want to pursue this? Cool. Well, here's all of the, the, the upside. Here's the potential areas of this diet where it could fail for you, for you. But here's how we plan for that. And here's how we make sure that you are optimizing and bulletproofing it so you do maximize or optimize both your performance and your long-term health. Yeah, I love that the conversation is starting to, to shift. It's a really exciting time. Now, Simon, I want to take a little bit of a 180 turn back into the conversation around your book. And it's interesting, like listening for, listening to a lot of the podcasts and obviously reading your book. As humans, it often takes a, an event in their life or in our lives before we start to focus on long-term health and make changes regarding longevity. As humans, it's innate in us to focus on the now, the present, the being. I love how your book is made up of various parts that contribute to adopting a healthy lifestyle and adding years to your life. For the listeners at home, would you be able to take us through briefly what these parts are and how the whole book compromises a, a holistic view of how to make these lifestyle shifts? Sure. So let me just check that I've got your question right here. You want to, you want to explore the, are we talking part two of the book where we're looking at the, the various diseases and, and risk reductions or part three in terms of making those changes to the lifestyle? All three parts and give the listeners an overview of about what they consist of. Okay, cool. So, uh, part one of the book is diet of confusion and Essentially, this is me outlining where we're going wrong with our diet and what are the contributing factors to that. Because it would be, it would be, you know, very, very easy but wrong to assume that the reason our diets are not optimal is due to personal willpower and personal education. It is much bigger than that, and so in that. Uh, in that part of the book, I explore the food environment in detail, which is, you know, the food environment is, it's, it's vast and it's influenced by a number of different uh, stakeholders and industries. Uh, but you can, the best way of thinking about this is, you know, how our grocery stores are showing up for us, how our petrol stations are showing up for us, how our kiosks at school, how are they showing up for us? how the food at the uh, sporting games that we go to, how is that showing up for us? How about the food at the hospitals? All of, of these environment environments really dictate to an extent what our diet looks like. And so when we better understand how that, that, that food environment is being created or designed, we can better navigate it we can be aware of things and and we can start to to understand what pressures there are uh that are, that are trying to push us down uh, a certain path that is not necessarily prioritizing our health is more often than not about prioritizing profits and pleasing shareholders uh so that's that's that section and 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 of course i also go into our healthcare system and the many ways where, and I'm a big proponent of Western medicine, but 
the, the, the structure of our system is one of sick care, uh, not healthcare. We, we've set up a system where we are very good at managing disease once it has set in, but we're not so good at preventing it and zooming back out and taking a very holistic view of, of, of health in our societies uh, and understanding what the risk factors are for these chronic diseases and setting up our communities for success uh, rather than being a very reactive, you know, once someone is, is, has established chronic disease, they see their doctor. And by that time, you know, of course you can, you can manage conditions. In some cases you can put someone into remission or reverse their condition. But really, if we want to take health seriously as a, as a country, we have to be acting far earlier, you know, decades before that person would otherwise show up in their uh, doctor's clinic uh, diagnosed with chronic disease. Uh, so, so that's part one. And that, that is really about helping people better navigate, uh, the, 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 the food environment and understanding the pressures that are out there. Uh, I think that's part a two really is, important part. Sorry, Simon, to interject. I think that's a really important part because it is somewhat assumed knowledge for health professionals, quote unquote, that the general population are noticing these things that that we are noticing in regards to marketing campaigns and heights of different things at the supermarket shelves ads that are beyond our control. So I think it's a really fantastic place to start in the book and for people that, you know, really don't know where to start. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I've copped any heat from my sort of uh, my description of, of what I think is contributing to poor diet. Sometimes uh, I get, I get some feedback that, uh, I, I should be firmer on, on individual change and, and the, the solution being about individual willpower. And, you know, I do think education is very important. I wouldn't have written a book if I didn't think individual educating on an individual level is important. Uh, and my message, my main message there being that, you know, let's, let's look at smoking. As an example, in, in the 1940s, 1950s, there was, there was significant amounts of research that showed a clear link between smoking and lung cancer. And, you know, at, at the time, there were people that were educating about, about that. And for the very fortunate people that heard that information and stopped smoking, they may have had their life saved. But what actually happened was it took governments about three decades to start to change legislation on smoking. So it took a, a, a long time between having the science and the changes in legislation. And so millions and millions and millions of people died that didn't need to if governments were able to respond quickly. So where I'm going with this is the, you know, yes, I want governments to change and make legislation changes with regards to our food environment. But I'm also very wary that those changes don't have happen overnight. And if I can get the information into someone's hands today and they can navigate this food system, they don't have to wait for the regulations to change. They can actually start making healthier choices today, you know, based on their individual circumstances and their budget, et cetera, that will lower their risk of, of disease. So that's kind of where I sit on, on uh, all of that. Yeah, I love that, Simon. I think that 
as consumers, we have a really important role in making these changes in legislation happen based on demand. So if we can empower ourselves and arm ourselves with the knowledge on what is happening that we can't control, then we can make decisions within our control to promote health. We all vote with our dollar and you're right. You know, the, the, uh, let's say the, the sort of plant-based milk industry, uh, today, for example, you know, that, that industry is booming. It would not be there if individuals were not walking into Coles and Woolworths and buying plant-based milk. It simply wouldn't be there. So um, sometimes I hear the argument, the opposite argument that individual action doesn't matter. And that's, that is, that is patent, that is wrong because it is the individuals going into these stores that are driving the demand and changing business. And, and so I think that's a great point that you make there. I'd love to explore part two and three of the book, if you can, Simon. Sure. So part two is where we look more at the common diseases that we're, we've very much normalized in our society. And we've accepted cardiovascular disease and type two diabetes and various forms of cancer and, and even Alzheimer's dementia. We've accepted all of these within our society as a normal part of aging. And, you know, in, in, in many circles, it's normal uh, within, within Western communities to see these conditions when people are in their 50s or 60s. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that way. We know that, it, you know, as of the, the latest 2017 Global Burden of Disease study, uh, which looked at all risk factors that contribute to chronic disease and uh, essentially ranked them by most important or most impactful to, to least. Poor diet ranked as number one. Poor diet was responsible for more chronic disease and premature death than any other risk factor that was measured in that study. Uh, so this section of the book is about looking at where does the science lie uh, in terms of the foods we're eating and how it is either fueling these chronic diseases or helping protect us against them. And there, there is a, a, a sort of relative degree, I guess, of consistency. It can vary from disease to disease with regards to how much science we have. But the overarching point that I want people to underst understand here is that although we want a black and white answer, and, and, and black and white answers, absolutes do sell very, very well. Uh, nutrition science is not black and white. There is some nuance and some gray. And that doesn't mean that we don't know anything. It is very, very clear. But rather than one diet brand being the single best diet brand that has categorically been proven, as the best brand to, of, of diet to fight disease and help us live longer. What's clear is that there is a set of characteristics and these characteristics are a diet that is low in saturated fat and trans fats. It provides a good amount of unsaturated fats. It's rich in fiber and plant protein, and it's low in ultra processed foods. And time and time again, we see when people are eating in that manner, they're protected against cardiovascular disease. Uh, 
they tend to have a healthier body weight, healthier blood pressure, healthier cholesterol. They tend to have lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes, various forms of cancer like colorectal cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer. Uh, they tend to have lower risk of, of developing dementia. Their brains are working better for longer. And then when we look at their overall lifespan, they tend to live longer. So not only are they living better, but they're living longer. And those characteristics that I just described, they are naturally achieved when you adopt a diet where all or most calories are coming from fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. So the, the overarching message that I'm sort of making in part two is that it's not so much about the label that we put on our diet, but that overall theme. And within that, it does give people uh, a degree of, 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 there are some options there. You have the choice. Is that a very thoughtfully constructed Mediterranean diet, which is a very largely plant-based diet? Is it a pescatarian diet? Is it a vegetarian diet? Is it a, a, a whole food vegan diet? Uh, and there are, of course, different things to consider, uh, perhaps within that decision, uh, based on on what that person, uh, you know, what's important to that person. Some people are making their food choices, you know, based off of culture and uh, what what they can sustain for the long term. For for other people, it's about not only how their food. Is affecting their health but how is it affecting the environment and how is it affecting the welfare of animals uh and so you know part two is not about me kind of saying is the here's the only diet that you should follow i kind of approached it with here's the science and uh now you can you can make up you know your your own decision as to uh what's the level of commitment that you're looking for i think that's a really important part in anyone's health journey i know i see in my line of work as a personal trainer i typically find it challenging coming from a, a longevity point of view and steering away from the the social norm in regards to the fitness industry where you're there to get physique driven goals which is the basis of my job and i i find it really challenging in a marketing point of view and an educational point of view to encourage people to focus on building better movement habits that are going to help them move when they're 50 and still be running marathons when they're 50 rather than looking a certain way when you're 18. I think that as holistic health professionals, it's not that person providing the consumer with the exact rules to follow on what to do. It's giving them a set of characteristics that they can then adopt to their own lifestyle because it's not a one size fits all approach. It needs to be adaptive. Yeah. And, you know, I think, uh, it, it takes some maturity, uh, to kind of get to that level of thinking, uh, you know, early, I could probably, you know, earlier in my career, I would have, uh, been a bit more forthright with uh, there is there's one way or one better way. And, you know, I've over the years learned that uh, there are many ways and you really need to work with the individual. And there there's no point in having a cookie cutter, one size fits all approach 
when for many people that will fail and what we what we're looking for is for people to find the level of commitment that works for them and when i say that i mean a way of eating that they can sustain in the long term you know you and I, you you and i we're we're not wanting people to make changes to their plate that they can only they can only adhere to for two weeks so um you know a big part of my message is around uh taking some pressure off of the the label particularly if you feel like that's that's not right for you and making changes at your own pace um you know not worrying so much about the outside world and finding finding changes that will be life lasting for you because ultimately for your health consistency over time is what matters the most I totally agree. I totally agree. Now, Simon, before we dive into part three of the book, which is a really exciting part of the book, and I particularly love that part as well, I'd love to zoom in on a few macronutrients of focus. And particularly, I know in my line of work as a PT, I see a lot of conversation regarding protein, especially within a one-on-one sort of lens when I'm telling my my clients about my lifestyle and how I adopt this, this pattern of eating that that's the first question that comes to mind. I know from reading your book that it's not as a, as a nutrient of concern as what we label it to be in society, like it is important, but I'd love to know your thoughts on an adequate amount of protein for plant-based diet. And if, if this is achieved naturally. Yeah. So firstly, it can absolutely be achieved. All plants contain protein. So getting adequate amount is, is not a concern. And the, the amount that someone needs does vary depending on their age and what their goals are. And so if we looked at just the kind of RDI level, which is probably for someone who's more sedentary, you're looking at 0.8 grams uh, per kilogram of body weight which is not a lot of, of protein. And most people probably lis- listening to this are, are going to want to consume more than that. They're probably quite active. Uh, and so uh, um, if someone, if we go to the other extreme uh, and we say someone who's absolutely wanting to optimize for muscle growth and recovery, and let's say they're a, a strength or hypertrophy a- athlete, then we have studies showing that you'd want to be consuming around about at least 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. So that's double what the RDI is. Uh, And the reason I like to use that extreme is because if that's what your target is, that is completely achievable and therefore anything in the middle can also be achieved. Um, And so uh, often the, the, the question that that sort of comes up here is, uh, okay, sure. You can. We we know that plants contain protein, and and you know, in terms of for the listeners who who may not be super familiar with this style of eating, the although there are there is protein in all plants, the food group that's going to provide the most is typically the legume food group. So we're talking about tofu and tempeh and uh, different types of beans, um, soy milk etc there are other foods outside of that that are high in protein like seitan um or we can start moving towards you know a bit more processed foods like plant-based burger patties etc um and legume pastas uh but the question that comes up is 
today is more around not whether you can consume enough. I think everyone has settled on that and, 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 and most people agree that yes, it's completely uh, not only possible, it's actually quite easy to do um, is what about the absorption? What about the bioavailability of plant protein? And this is a very interesting, valid question. Uh, we know that uh, in certain plant foods because of fiber and certain uh, minerals, the, the bioavailability rate of certain nutrients can be lower compared to animal foods. And that's actually not an inherently bad thing, which is another discussion in itself. Um, but this question does come up. And, and so, um, you know, what is the answer? What is the bioavailability of plant protein versus animal protein? And about five, 10 years ago, the idea, the, the, the understanding at that time was that there was quite some difference between the two. And at this time, the studies were based on, on rats and in pigs. And there are a couple of limitations of this kind of science in terms of extrapolating those findings and applying them to humans. The first is that, you know, rats and, and pigs, of course, have a different digestive system to humans, uh, but they can act as a model. So it is interesting. Um, but probably the, the most important limitation is how how they were preparing the plant proteins in these studies and in almost all of them they're feeding raw protein uh plant protein so raw legumes uh for example raw peas and that's problematic because we know that when you as a human when you cook these foods the protein becomes more bioavailable uh now thankfully in more recent years we have we have studies that are in humans looking at what what is the the difference in absorption uh, between plant and animal protein when you do properly prepare these foods. And it seems that the difference is only a few percent. Now, uh, being totally transparent at the moment, they've only really looked at five or 10 different plant foods, different types of beans and legumes. So yes, of course, I, I would love them to go out and study another hundred foods and uh, give us a, a great long list, but it looks promising. And that's the most important uh, thing for now, but really none of this, none of this actually matters too much. And, and when I say that, um, I think something that's really important for people to understand is that we can get caught up on absorption rates and, uh, you know, nutrient density and comparing one food to the other, but I think most people would agree what matters most is the health outcome. When you eat that food compared to the other food, what does that do for your risk of chronic disease? Or in this instance, what does it do in terms of muscle growth, promotion of strength? If we're talking about athletes. So really what we care here is, is not about bioavailability and, and certain percentages. It's if you eat plant protein, compared to animal protein, what, what are the differences in terms of increasing lean muscle tissue and strength? That's the most important thing that we all want to know. And uh, there, there has been several studies over the last five to 10 years that have looked at this and 
again, there seemed to be slight benefit in consuming animal protein, in, in particularly in some of the early studies. But then we started to realize, a few, we learned a lot more around, uh, around uh, muscle protein synthesis and what it takes to trigger that. And, and if anyone hasn't heard of muscle protein synthesis, you can, you can think of it as the laying down of, of new muscle tissue. And so the primary trigger uh, for, for this is actually doing resistance training. Uh, stimulus for this is resistance training. Uh, and we know that nutrition is important as well. And when it comes to nutrition, what we've been able to tease out over the last few years is that total protein is important. I mentioned before 1.6 grams per kilo. for and, and that is based on studies looking at how do we maximize MPS, uh, muscle protein synthesis, and building new muscle. Um, but what we've also worked out is that there is a particular amino acid that is is important in triggering muscle protein synthesis, amino acid being the building block of protein. And this amino acid is leucine. Now, leucine is particularly uh, rich in uh, or I should say animal products tend to be particularly rich in leucine. So when you run a study and you compare animal to plant protein and you don't match the leucine, so in the animal group, uh, people are getting a higher leucine intake compared to the plant group, then you will see a difference in outcomes. But in recent uh, years and as recently as uh, last year, there was a study out of Brazil that actually you know conducted a, a much more controlled study what they wanted to see was okay well what happens if you have one group who's eating all animal products the other group all plant foods not only are you uh, equating total protein intake so they're both consuming 1.6 grams per kilo of protein but you're also making sure that they're consuming uh, adequate amount of leucine which means for the plant group consuming um you know uh higher higher leucine uh plant rich foods and and a protein powder that is rich in leucine and what they showed in that study was there was no difference over an eight-week training period for uh lean muscle and for strength and so that was the very very first study matt that ever looked at a a completely plant-based diet, both the foods they were eating and the protein powder they were taking versus an omnivorous diet with a whey protein shake. Uh, and so, um, you know, at the takeaway point from that study is that at least in, in these healthy adult uh, subjects who they were physically active, but they weren't, they weren't, they didn't have a history of res resistance training. Uh, but at least in, in this population, there was no benefit to consuming animal protein over plant protein. That's a game changer. Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, it really did change perspectives. It, it has changed a lot of people's perspective. I should say the lead researcher of that study, uh, Hamilton Rochelle uh, from Brazil, he he's not a, a plant-based guy his hypothesis was the animal group would do better 
you know, most of them went into this study thinking that the animal group would do uh, better. And that's because of all of those historical studies I mentioned that did show uh, a slight advantage to animal protein. Uh, but this was the, the sort of first study that controlled uh, total protein a little bit better, made sure that plant-based group was consuming good amounts of leucine. Uh, and so my message is to someone who is either completely plant-based or thinking about doing it is that it's absolutely possible. And so you can have this diet that is reducing your risk of chronic disease and is, uh, is, has been you know, shown in, in many different studies to be great for longevity. But at the same time, you can tweak a few things around to optimize it in a more sort of uh, short-term point of view from a performance uh, lens in terms of building new muscle, improving strength, et cetera. That's so, so interesting. And it's changing the way we once thought about physique-related goals. And it's starting to add an element of health and longevity amongst the conversation, which I think is really important too. Yeah, and one thing I should add to that is this study was out of Brazil. So uh, having spoken to the lead researcher on this, I really wanted to understand what was the the baseline diet of the uh, plant-based eaters like, like what types of food were they eating? And here's a really, really interesting thing. Because of food availability in Brazil, it's different to here in our Australian supermarkets. They, they weren't eating any tofu or tempeh or legume pastas or seitan. It was all very, very much, you know, beans and chickpeas, whole, whole legumes. And so, so really what that tells me is you, you could perhaps even optimize that group's diet even more by tapping into some of these other, uh, you know, higher sort of protein plant-based foods that are available in Australia anyway. I look forward to watching the space on that to see if there's any any difference. Hopefully someone takes that under their belt and, and applies that into a study as well. Yeah, that will be that'll be interesting. I don't think it will show in terms of muscle uh, growth an advantage. I don't think you, you'll see the plant-based group laying down more muscle than the animal uh, group because I think once what we've been able to see now is that once you hit a certain threshold of that total protein and leucine, it doesn't really matter. But where I think that's interesting is that, and, and you'll, you'll know this, is that if someone's, say, trying to uh, lean up a little bit and you wanted to reduce their overall calories, some of those higher protein, lower total calorie foods or higher protein per calorie uh, foods can be advantageous. So I think if you were looking at a, a sort of another trial that was looking at um, resistance training, but potentially trying to uh, to to either you know maintain or drop some body weight. It could be advantageous to work in tempeh and legume pastas and seitan uh, versus all of the protein coming from say black beans and kidney beans, etc. Yeah, super super interesting. I love it. Now, Simon, I know we're a little bit pushed for time, but I'd love to ask one question regarding the conversations around fats. I think the conversation around carbohydrates is is well and truly past that we know that carbohydrates are definitely incorporated in a healthful diet. But 
Regarding this conversation around fats, we know that the saturated fats are abundant in animal proteins and they're a nutrient of concern in regarding, in relation, sorry, to the prevalence of chronic disease. Is there a plant a difference between plant-based sources of saturated fats and animal-based sources of saturated fats in the way that the body responds? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Uh, so first thing is saturated fat is actually an umbrella term and there are different types of saturated fat. So uh, probably we should say saturated fats. Uh, and, you know, sometimes uh, sometimes we don't go to that extent. I say we in terms of just anyone in the space of nutritional nutrition science because it can begin to confuse things to the average person that may not want that level of detail. Um, but here's, here's, the, here's the main uh, takeaway point here. One of the key benefits of plant predominant or plant exclusive diets is that naturally, if you're eating mostly whole foods, you lower your total saturated fat intake. Now, why is that important? Because science has consistently been able to show that when our, our total calories per day from saturated fat are, are under 10% of our total calories, we have significantly lower risk of cardiovascular disease. When you shift to that plant predominant plant exclusive diet, providing you're not consuming bucket loads of coconut oil or palm oil, that naturally happens. Now, the question is, are the saturated fats in, in coconut oil, palm oil, and even cacao butter, which is used to make chocolate, are they the same as the saturated fats in animal foods in terms of let's say, raising our cholesterol and, and affecting our risk of cardiovascular disease. Here's, a, here's the, the bottom line. Coconut oil and palm oil will significantly increase your LDL cholesterol, which is not great. That's not what we want. Our lifetime exposure to high LDL cholesterol is one of the greatest predictors of cardiovascular disease. So we actually want our LDL cholesterol to be going in the other direction down not what happens when you consume lots of coconut oil or palm oil. Now, compared to what is a very important question in nutrition science, we could run a clinical trial and compare coconut oil to butter and make coconut oil look good. And that's because the saturated fats in butter do raise cholesterol more than coconut oil. But that doesn't let coconut oil off the hook. Uh, in my view, coconut oil still significantly raises cholesterol. So uh, coconut oil and palm oil, the two tropical oils, uh, they can feature within a plant-based diet, but I would want them to feature very, in, in very small amounts. They're not the, the oils that I recommend people are cooking with two, three times a day. You know, perhaps there's some coconut oil in a, in a, a, a treat or something that you have, you know, here, there but you're not kind of slathering it on all of your food uh, at every single meal. And it can add up quite quickly. Cacao butter is the third sort of uh, plant-based food that is rich in saturated fats. And often that one comes up. Now this one's really interesting. So cacao butter uh, contains a lot of the saturated fat stearic acid. And stearic acid actually behaves a little bit differently to palmitic and to lauric acid, 
which are the saturated fats that tend to jack cholesterol up and are found in varying proportions in animal foods and even in coconut oil, like I just mentioned. In the trials that have looked at cacao, we actually see that it has a, a fairly neg- negligible effect on cholesterol levels. So in terms of the sort of one plant-based food that is rich in saturated fat that I don't mind people consuming, that is cacao butter, uh, again, which is used in chocolate. Uh, The evidence seems to suggest that it's not really affecting cholesterol levels. Um, So, you know, I think it's, I think that one's completely okay. And, And in fact, I do advocate for the inclusion of dark chocolate you know, in, in modest amounts within the diet, because it is very, very rich in polyphenols, um, which have you know, enormous health benefits. And, and we do see in the research quite consistently that uh, chocolate is associated with good health outcomes. Simon, I want to touch on a point that you just said, modest amounts and moderation. And this is something that typically can get confusion with confusing within this space, because moderation is a term that you can apply to almost anyone's lifestyle. Like I can moderately eat Mm. chocolate and someone else can moderately eat chocolate Mm. and they can be different. What is there an absolute in terms of a specific amount, like a square a night or something? Great question. Uh, And a, and a very, you know, it's a very important question in nutrition because uh, you know, a lot of the time what dictates whether a food is healthy or not is the exposure level. So you've nailed it there. Um, And so I need to be more specific with what I mean there in terms of of moderate. Uh, it does look to be around one to two squares a day maximum. So when we look at uh, a a sort of risk curve, if you if uh, if anyone's familiar with that, um, I'll try and explain it. But what it, what we see in the, in studies with chocolate exposure is that up to about that one or two squares a day, you see the risk of, of chronic disease going down or overall mortality going down, which means risk of death. Um, and, but then beyond that, as it starts to go above that one to two squares a day, it actually starts to increase risk. So uh, exposure is you know enormous in terms of communicating a lot of the findings in nutrition science, take home message there. Uh, include a little bit of dark chocolate in your diet. Don't don't be fearful that it's going to do anything crazy to your cholesterol. But at the same point, try and keep it to that sort of one or two squares a day. I love it. And that was more from my behalf as well, because I'm an avid dark chocolate person. <laughs> Could yeah, definitely consume the whole block. It's uh it's easy. It can get out of hand. Uh you know, I'm human too. So um, you know, it's it's good to have that information. And then, you know, work out a way uh, that you can, uh, you can sort of hold yourself accountable to that <laughs> level of exposure. Love it. Now, Simon, that's pretty much it for the basis of the conversation. I've absolutely enjoyed the path we've taken and, you know, listening to you firsthand explain some of the stuff that I've listened to over and over again on podcasts and read through your book. I just have a couple of rapid fire questions to finish off before we, we close up the podcast. If you're, if you're keen for that, let's do it. Coffee or tea and how do you have it? Coffee. It's a long black. Love it. What would you have if you could only have one meal for the rest of your life? 
Oh, I'm loving right now a uh, a Asian inspired soba noodle. I love soba noodles. Uh, tofu. It's got some coriander in there. Some ginger, carrot. Uh, it's delicious. The bomb. And what's the most rewarding part about the work that you do? Obviously, you're not necessarily practicing as a as a nutrition in terms of a clinical setting but the reach that you're having on people is astronomical so what's the most rewarding part of the work that you do i think it's the instilling confidence in in people and the messages i get where where people have had a bit of an aha moment and have all of a sudden begun to really value science and and understanding that not all science is equal and they're better able to navigate all of that information on social media and they feel more confident and uh they can they can work out which uh people on social media to continue following and and who to trust and so uh you know i think the most rewarding part is about about really communicating the importance of science and what science means and and how we should approach science in terms of uh, making decisions in our life and and hopefully improving our our health along the way. I love it, taking people on their own health journey. It's it's been a pleasure, Simon. Thank you so much for shedding light on on this wonderful realm of plant-based nutrition and, and longevity. And I look forward to listening in on all the work that you continue to do. Thanks, Matt, and uh, keep up the great work. Super, super appreciative of you and glad to be here today with uh, your listeners. So uh, thanks again for inviting me on. Wow, wasn't that truly incredible? It is so inspiring to sit down and have a conversation with someone who devotes his whole life to science and sharing information with no hidden agenda. Isn't it fascinating to know how much of an impact we can have by changing what we put on our plate, the impact that it can have on our health, the health of the planet and the lives of our beloved animals. The proof is truly in the plants. Simon is one of the most well-respected health professionals within this health community and I'm sure you're all aware of his incredible work. However, if you're unaware, you can head on over to social media platforms and join in the conversation. He's most active on Instagram and you can find him at plant underscore proof or check out his podcast, The Plant Proof Podcast, which is on all podcasting platforms. I mentioned it earlier, guys, don't forget to get your hands on Simon's new book, The Proof is in the Plants, and try and shop local for this where we can, friends. It's such a difficult time for all small business so we can support them in any way. That is fantastic. Well, another bucket list item has been ticked off, chatting to someone who I idolize in the nutrition space. Simon, thank you, and thank you all for tuning in, folks. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to share it with a friend on social media, and if you can leave a rating and review on the podcast app, that would be incredible. As always, folks, please ensure you make changes to your diet or lifestyle under the guidance of a qualified health professional, as this advice is of a general nature only. That's all for this week, friends. Stay safe, stay happy, stay healthy, and I'll see you next week on the Euphoria Health Podcast.